you start to open up the hood of the, the engine and a lot of things become possible if the system's an open system. Welcome to episode 424 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Markatilian McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with Jeff Christensen, president of EntryPoint Networks, a consulting and software company working with communities around the country, including Ammon, Idaho, and their open access network. Jeff shares with Christopher some of the software upgrades EntryPoint has developed over the last year and the impact they'll have, both for administrators and users moving forward. Christopher and Jeff then dig into the future of state telecommunications policy and the vision that communities need to have to confront the realities of existing cable and telecom monopolies around the country. They talk about the potential of government policies that promote competition rather than restrain it, and the possibilities for network innovation if we were to reframe how we think about internet access, so infrastructure and service become separate components. Finally, they spend some time discussing practical steps communities can take, including defining the problem and then making low-interest loans to build open-access fiber networks in their region. Now here's Christopher talking with Jeff Christensen. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, recording today in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm talking with Jeff Christensen, the president and CEO of EntryPoint. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Chris, great to be back. Thank you. It's uh, always a pleasure. Yes, I'm. I'm excited to for people to hear what uh, some of the the exciting updates that that you've shared with me that um, that uh, we'll start with in a minute. Uh, but we're going to talk a lot today about how states should think about solving this problem. I think you have a proposal that I really like, and I'd love to see uh, where it goes um, in terms of getting some states to embrace it. Uh, but let's start off by just reminding people, uh, EntryPoint. What is EntryPoint? EntryPoint is most famous, I'm sure, because we're the technology behind the AMA network in Idaho. You know that I have a specialized audience when you can say that. <laughs> You're most famous because of being running the technology in a right. town in eastern Idaho. <laughs> that nobody's heard of, except in broadband context. But I've visited three yeah. times, and it's wonderful. And you've probably spent yeah. half your life there at this point. It seems like. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had a I've had a coke break from drives to Idaho, sure. but uh, <laughs> but I was there last Thursday again, and I, I've been trying to calculate how many times I've driven that road, and it's well over two hundred. Yeah, so. I think it's somewhat scenic, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not the Tetons, but it's it's, it's good. So entry point, I cut you off. Yeah, no, EntryPoint is the technology. We're really a software as a service technology for open access networks. Um, Ammon being the first and really showcase client at this point in time. And our focus is the way we look at what we're doing is we are taking technology that exists in the data center, networking technology, and applying it to a city context for an open access network. Um, we're unique probably in the municipal broadband space because we are a pure software play, but we have figured out that you can't just build software, you have to actually build networks to uh, make things happen. So we've, the last two to three years, we've spent a lot more time and effort um, contributing to that space. And if people want to want to search you, I, I think we'll try to put these in the show notes, but you have two TEDx talks that really go into a lot of the philosophy behind what you do. Yep. 
two TEDx talks that 2016, 2017. So they're they're a little dated in age, but I don't think the concepts are dated uh, yet. Uh, probably a hundred articles have been written about Ammon. One article that's relevant for our conversation today is an article I published in Medium earlier this year, really as COVID emerged, sort of projecting where we what we thought would happen with the money that would um, flow to broadband because of COVID. I think we were pretty accurate in terms of how how that's unfolded, but we can get into that more in this conversation. Yeah, let's do that. But let's start by um, just learning a little bit more about what's happening. For people who are really enthusiastic about Ammon, is there news out there that they should be excited about in terms of others that are moving forward with that model? Yeah, there's a couple of different threads that are happening. There's what's going on in Ammon itself. And um, Ammon has been a slow process one, because they built the network. Two, because they have iterated alongside us. And the technology challenges that we are attacking are, are difficult. And so we've been a mitigating factor. We've affected the pace at which they could go. But Ammons, this year, they'll, they're about to connect another 500 customers over the next two months. Another thread is what's going on with the technology. And um, I would say last year, 2019, there was a focus on scale. Can this technology scale to a city of 50,000, 100,000, 250,000? Before you say that, let me, um, let me just jump in to note the technology in particular. I think people would most think of it at its simplest form as allowing people to choose between multiple service providers. Um, you do a lot more than that, but in particular, this is um, a portal that a, a person uses on their computer to to choose which services they want. Um, that's sort of what people see, but there's a lot of other stuff behind underneath the hood. But uh, for people who aren't familiar with Ammon, that's the, the software we're talking about. Yeah. Thanks for not letting me just run past assumptions <laughs> here. Yes, you're correct. Today, it is a portal where people can dynamically in real time choose an ISP. Or multiple ISPs. Like I just, I love that. That's yeah. part of the vision is yeah. that it's not just one. Yeah. The way I talk about it the most is we're giving people a virtual wire and our goal is to let them choose what they do across that virtual wire, but they can also have many virtual wires coming across one physical wire. This year, we've been focused on the operating system that goes at the customer edge. So we, we made some really important um, headway on the scale issue last year. The thing that has really limited the full suite of automation has been this operating system. We were previously leasing or outsourcing that to a, a company out of Hong Kong. And this year we have we bought that operating system and we needed to make some fundamental changes to it to enable the full path of automation. Mm -hmm. So September 1st, we will start to deploy that, that operating system in Ammon and it's not earth shattering for anybody, but people that have a real close view of what's going on. But for, I would say this is the most significant leap forward for entry point um, and what will become possible. Uh, now with this change. So, so this is a big, you know, we've really been working on these problems from the beginning, which is now 10 years plus. Um, so this is a big um, 
inflection point for the technology. Stay tuned for, for new changes in the software. Yeah. So the next 12 months will be, there will be a lot that will will happen in the next 12 months. And then on top of that, I don't know how much you um, are, are interested in sharing, but uh, we know that there's several other towns that are um, have been interested studying this and look like they're going to be moving forward. Yeah. So in Idaho itself, you know, I think it's official that Mountain Home and McCall are two um, cities that are the same size, roughly, as Ammon. McCall is interesting because they're four to 5,000 people throughout the year, and in the summer months, there's 30,000 people. So that creates real interesting challenges for their communication systems. So both of those are official. I think there's there's 20 that could move over the next 12 months, and we try not to get ahead of clients making their own announcements. But, you know, we don't know exactly. I know some of them that will make their own announcements over the coming months, but really I was looking at the list and there's 20 that, that could move. Right. That's just um, that are far enough along. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, you know, people look at it and think, how can you have 20 projects going simultaneously? And um, we're a software company and, and software scales if other things are happening that need to happen. Well, I also think you've um, um, exhausted your family traveling around the country, <laughs> um, talking yeah. with folks about this, uh, and uh, and I think that's a, a big piece of it. I know that you've made a big effort to be in media, to um, to just any any opportunity you had to get the word out, and I think that's a, a big piece of it too. Yeah, there's a lot of seeds have been put in the ground, and we don't know the exact timing on that, but. There are a lot of cities that are looking at Ammon and range in size from the smallest, I think, is probably 12,000 and the biggest is 250,000 at this point. That's just, it's thrilling. Um, But I did have you on because I want to talk about um, something you, we were going back and forth about state policy and, um, and we, you offered several bullet points that I think are well worth discussing about how states should be thinking about this. Now, before we get into those bullet points, um, you, when we were talking about this, you, you said very emphatically, people need to have a vision. And I'm curious what that means. Part of it is really understanding what the problem is. And I think a lot of people understand that we are either at a cable monopoly or we're headed there. So part of the vision is just being able to articulate what's wrong with this these systems or the system. Um, and monopoly is, for me, it distills down to these companies have absolute control and and that's the fundamental starting point is is the of the problem now i think i think you're right i actually think that's how a lot of americans think of this issue but i think a lot of people at the state level think of it as just there's not enough people that have access to a monopoly <laughs> and that it's yeah. just a matter of getting service out there and so you know it, it is interesting that i feel like the way you defined it resonates i mean i can't tell you how many times i'm talking with some group of people mixed uh, that sometimes some consultants or other people that are kind of like on our side of thinking about this problem from a policy point of view. And someone, an activist from a community says, oh, you know, we're really struggling. This is where we are. And another person says, well, you know, half your town already has Comcast. What's the problem? And not understanding that like the demand for better service in that town 
it may actually even be stronger in the area that has Comcast than the side that doesn't. I mean, that's one of the things that we've seen in some places is that towns that are trying to build out in the areas that don't have broadband in a rural area, they have people in the area that has um, a big cable provider and they're saying, no, no, come to us. Like we really need it too. And and so people just don't understand that um, even if you have monopoly service, and even if I would say, I think that's a fairly decent, you know, technical broadband service that Comcast is delivering and the price is not too outrageous. It, many people, that's not, uh, that, that is a problem still. That's not the solution. The crazy thing is, is you, if, you, if we really could see a map of a city and see what people are actually getting, um, it's really sporadic. And, and there are pockets in every city in this country that have crazy bad coverage. And, and so the, the reality on the ground is this is a problem in every U.S. city including the big urban centers. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a problem everywhere. And it's a really a fundamental problem with the model. And so, so to go back to vision, I think we've got to be more articulate on what the problem is. And that includes, you know, I think at the federal level and at the state level, there's a real lack of articulate understanding of this problem and, and what's going on out there where communities are fixing it. And, you know, you've done as much as anybody to, to fix that. I've deliberately tried to have a very big tent and not yeah. to sort of pick the models. But I think I'm I'm so excited by the work John Sallet and the Benton Institute are doing to really bring this issue of competition to the fore. Um because I, I do feel like in DC and many state capitals there's a sense that competition for if you have a pro competition government policy, that means you try to stay out of the way rather than yeah. you are investigating what it takes in terms of positive government policies, which I don't mean in terms of necessarily saying that they're obviously good, but just in the sense of government doing something in addition to create competition. Um, And that's, it's a mindset thing that I feel like most people haven't grasped yet is that we will not have competition if government just removes barriers. We actually need to have positive investment from neutral entities to create the capacity for competition at a scale that would really be competition. Yep. I I think that's really true. And I think we'll probably get into that a little more in our conversation here as it relates to opening up funding and financing for networks. Um, The other piece of it that I think we're all blind to is the innovation side of it, which means <laughs> these companies have total control. And so effectively they block innovation. So they're blocking anybody from innovating around them. And so this idea, and this is really Robert Peterson's idea, the separating infrastructure and service. Bruce Patterson has instantiated the idea in the Ammon Network. Robert Peterson is a man of of many um, hats, and one of the things he's done is he's um, worked as a consultant with rural telcos, but also uh, has been a major um, influence and in, and in, um, in, um, I'm trying to think of the right visionary of the Ammon network of entry point um, and that sort of a thing. So his name doesn't always come up. He's kind of a behind the scenes ideas guy. Yeah, yeah. So Robert is the founder of Entry Point. Um, when Bruce Patterson and Ammon started that network, he went to Robert Roberts. Um, really been the consultant for Ammon throughout the the whole pro and is today 
so that that continues. Um, so that is Robert's fundamental idea: separating infrastructure and service, and that that is fundamental to the vision. Until we get that separation, where um, the public controls the infrastructure in some form, and it's separated from the services. I don't think we can solve this problem. I think that separation has to occur. Um, and there may be there may be instances where people behave in a benevolent way. Um, and so theoretically, it could happen. Practically, we, we feel strongly separate infrastructure. And so there needs to be a separation of power for this problem to get solved. And the problem in this case you're talking about is innovation. Uh, that's how you yeah. kind of got into this. So so I, I feel like a lot of people have this mindset that what's left to innovate? You know, we have we had voice, now we have video, like <laughs> we have data, right. video, and voice. What else yeah. is there? Right, and it really is. I mean, inertia is part of the vision problem because we, we know these systems work. And what we can do with these networks is, is quite remarkable. But we really have settled in now for 20 years, 25 years on the status quo on how these networks are being operated. And, and so there is no discussion out there of what innovation is not happening because we're stuck inside of this paradigm. And, you know, part of what we're excited about next year with this operating system is we will start to peel that onion. Um, you know, and one question is, and we don't have an answer to this, but one question is, um, what is it that ISPs do that can or cannot be automated? And And it's not just the ISP, but any service delivered across this network what what can we do to, through automation to improve network reliability? Um, what can we do to avoid truck rolls? Security. I mean, every everything that's important to a network, we're interested in applying automation to that problem and seeing how far that will take us. That's one of those areas where I feel like, for those of us who got, you know, we're we're used to the network having these oddities, you know, for there was a while where email became unusable. And um, then we got better spam blocker lists and, and all these things. And I feel like we're kind of invisible to how much things don't work right now because of security. And that's yeah. one of those areas where I feel like we could see a lot of innovation and, and take our blinders off and realize we don't have to live with our data being constantly exposed to everyone. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, another interesting thing. So Robert Peterson called me on Monday morning this week and he had spent the weekend looking at uh, upload and download speeds. Um, I think he had sampled data like 80 times over a period of time and comparing the rate of growth of upload speed and download speed from October of last year through today. So the expectation is that the demand would increase for both upload and download speed because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And he, his finding was that the download speed did increase at a predictable rate, but that the upload speeds were increasing at a pace that if it continued, and I don't think it would because I think COVID's put into demand, but if it did continue, we would be up to demand of terabit upload speeds in a matter of years. And so he's just he's just showing that the rate of growth for upload speed 
is increasing much faster than he expected. But if you're running a cable company and you artificially block or cap what people can do with upload, you're never going to see that trend. Mm -hmm. You're not going to pick that up in the data because you're artificially constraining it. So he's looking at a network that doesn't constrain it and seeing what's happening. So it, you know, it's just, you start to open up the hood of the, the engine and a lot of things become possible uh, if the system's an open system. And that's why we need to make sure the, the states are, are thinking about this and the, have the right vision. And the vision is yeah. in, unleashing innovation, is encouraging competition. Now, the first principle that you put forward, I think we can probably agree to and move past pretty quickly. Um, and that is that because anyone who's listening to this show um, is certainly aware that one of our big issues is that cities should have the authority um, to build their own networks. Uh, similarly, uh, states um, technically don't even have the authority to limit cooperatives, but they still do. And the cooperatives have to go to district court, um, federal court in order to have that overturned. And they're often reluctant to. So the flat out states should just make it clear that, that there's subdivisions and and that cooperatives have authority to own and operate uh, fiber networks to the home. Yep. And I would include counties in that. Counties today, we're working with a county in Arizona that is ready to go in terms of political leadership, but they're constrained by a financing vehicle through state law. So you said subdivision, so that would include counties. But yeah, I mean, I, we need to clear that hurdle nationwide. Um, the second point then, because I we could talk more about that, but people already know our position on it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the second piece is is where I feel like we're finally at a place where I can imagine this happening. And several years ago, we were thinking it would be nice, but um, now I can really see this happening. Uh, states should provide low interest twenty year loans for cities and infrastructure cooperatives, and I would also just add um, tribes as well um, to build fiber optic networks. Um, and, and so why, why low interest long-term loans, um, as a mechanism rather than grants? Grants are great. And, you know, the, I think the thinking today is that if in a lot of places that uh, grant is needed in, in order to build this kind of network, we really will try and focus in on the fact that the average cost. Uh, for our American consumers today is $68 a month. And that's for a really average network, uh, at least speed and capability. So that money is the money that we should focus our financing on because that's money people are spending consistently. A big majority of U.S. households have a wired connection. They're spending that $68. And so we want to see financing focused on not coming up with new income for revenue streams because this is a new thing, but really altering the financing path that exists today. So we want to focus on what's being spent today and just get more value and, and probably in most cases shrink what they're paying. The idea of a, a low interest loan is that if the state would get behind it, it would really open up the spigot in terms of financing these projects. And part of our thing, we would solve this problem really rapidly if we could get to a real estate developer mentality. So if fiber is real estate and we opened up the possibility that fiber can be developed like other real estate, 
And the two conditions that you and I have discussed are one, that the network is fiber. So that we're going to finance fiber optic networks. And two, that it's going to be open access. And, you know, that may sound self-serving to hear from a guy that has a software that's an open access software. But the point is that open access to us, the definition of open access is open to competition and open to innovation. And, you know, we would be fine if an incumbent operator tapped a state program for a low interest loan, as long as they're building fiber, and as long as they're going to make that network open access. Right. I feel like you can think about the self-interest of you as a software provider, but fundamentally, I feel like this is something we've talked about many times in terms of the roads. And I have felt and my personal philosophy is that um, if you're going to use that much taxpayer dollars to get a benefit for the public, it should be open to all. Um, yep. It shouldn't be, um, you know, sort of a, a windfall. Um, now, I don't think that should be written into law necessarily. Like I, I do feel like, I mean, I work at a place called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. So I fully yeah. respect that people may have ideas yeah. in their towns that are different from mine. But um, I I do feel like we're putting all this money. I mean, we think of the billions of dollars that have been spent by the federal government on infrastructure um, or even not on infrastructure, just subsidies to companies that already had infrastructure that they could build that's private and it is of no use to solving our problem today. Um, yeah. You know, last week, the podcast that came out um, talked about Mississippi and the co-ops down there. And uh, the federal government has put hundreds of millions of dollars into broadband in Mississippi, um, into not broadband, into subsidies to AT&T in Mississippi. And and the co-ops are now building it at a fraction of the subsidy to build fiber to the home. And you just, you have a sense of all that wasted money, but... Um, and I mean, it's, it's odd that I would use that as an example because the co-ops themselves are not supportive of open access requirements often. <laughs> um, but this is where I think, you know, there is a sense that um, um, it is entirely reasonable to put those sorts of requirements on uh, for the benefit of everyone. Yeah. And if, the, if we could, the way I want the government to think about it, whether it's federal or state, is how do we solve the broadband problem? And and to me, fiber is a core part of the solution because its capacity takes us 50 years out. So how do we solve the problem? Well, let's open up the incentives and the, the ability to attract capital or get capital. And But let's put it, if we're going to have this money spent, let's not give public money to private companies to drive up the stock price of those private companies. I'm a private company. I'm all for private companies doing well, but all of this public money is being spent. And the, you know, I think the outcomes are really poor in terms of public value that's come. Mm -hmm. Now I should say that we've combined points two and three. Um, the okay. point two is the loans and part three is, um, you're, you're right to combine them, um, that the infrastructure is fiber optic and open access. So for right. people who are counting at home, um, then the other piece of it is, I think I, um, I take seriously concerns that I think are often offered disingenuously by people that are working for the cable and telephone companies, that it is unfair for the government to create competition for them, that they made their investments, they took their risks. Why should government interfere? And I think government should 
pause and be very serious about thinking when it in, gets involved in, in a market, um, in any sort of thing. I mean, frankly, we should always have well-considered government policy, but in particular in this area where there would be a fear that government could use the power to tax to unfairly compete. And that's where I feel like the open access requirement as well uh, really uh, is helpful because of this idea of you're building a neutral platform that any entity can use to compete fairly then. You're creating that level playing field. Yeah, and it does, you know, that pushes us right back to the conversation. Fiber takes us into a new era of possibilities because we don't need, in most communities in the U.S., we don't need multiple fiber networks. We need one open fiber network, and it's open to any service provider, and and they're free to compete across that. We really are leveling the playing field, but the economics are not there. So I would say we believe two things are inevitable. One is fiber is inevitable because of its capacity. Um, The second thing that's inevitable is it's going to become shared infrastructure because the economics won't support doing the multiple instances of something where the inherent qualities of that media make it possible. We just need one. We need one good fiber network. Yes, the incentives in the history suggest that when there are two networks, they will either say, you take that market and I'll take this market, or they'll find some other way. They'll just say, all right, you know, we want, we're not going to talk to each other, but I see they just raised prices, so now we're going to raise prices. And you just, you don't get the benefits. So even if you have two, and I think three providers can change it, but historically, even three private sector companies will also try to figure out ways of maximizing their benefit because they don't have the right incentive to maximize innovation or spillover benefits or indirect benefits, whatever you want to think of it, all the other things that come along with these networks. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we're working with this county mm-hmm. in Arizona and 19 million just went to the cable company for E-rate. They got another million from a private foundation to build to a community of about 25,000. And then they got another million from the state of Arizona. You know, they, I know they're going to take that E-rate money and their plan is to build a 144-count fiber, even though there are not 144 schools and libraries in that county. So it's not like they're giving a fiber to every school and library. If the, if the county had the ability to just add to that fiber count at their expense, so, you know, we just, we're, we're just going to attach, we're going to add 96 strands to what you're already doing, and we will cover the cost of that. The public good that would come out of that would be immense. Um, mm-hmm. But that money has been handed over to this private company, and they will now leverage that for their benefit. Um, one exercise that I think would be really good for people to do at this point in time is to go look at the five-year stock price of the cable companies. Look at Charter Spectrum. Look at Comcast is a little more complicated because they bought, they're buying content, NBC, et cetera. Um, look at Cable One's five-year stock price. And then compare it to the pure telephone companies, CenturyLink and Frontier. There's a really interesting story playing out there in terms of you know, where are we headed and how close are we to monopoly. And so if people, now that's data, you don't have to parse through the accounting information in their in a report. Just go look at their stock price. And uh, the story is playing out there. 
And we also see reports that uh, two out of three subscribers of broadband are cable customers that um, it may be some are forecasting as high as 70%, I think, uh, now after COVID-19 has driven the demand for higher capacity connections in the home. Cable companies are winning and the telephone companies are trying to refocus their investments in those urban areas, but it's it's far from clear that um, that there'll be that will be enough, and even if it is, it's not to provide service to everyone. Um, and that actually gets us to your last point, uh, which is that you know you you call for um, loans. That actually reminds me um, when you say provide the low interest twenty year loans, I think people assume you're talking about rural areas, but you're talking about pretty much anywhere that that was willing to build this sort of infrastructure, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about anywhere. If, and I think you would really find a real estate developer mentality where there's an area of the country. Like, it would be surprising to people to see the fiber percentages in a lot of states in the U.S. I mean, the, the country as a whole is below 35%. But there are some states that are like below 5% fiber. And so I, if, that, if that capital is there, I think you would see very rapid, and I think in a 10-year period, you would see the country built out in fiber. And if it were open access, open to competition and innovation, then you would see a real transformation and a real flourishing, I think, of what's happening across the networks. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is what we saw with electricity. And that's that, look at Lafayette, uh, Louisiana. They have a generation plant for electricity that serves the communities around them. I don't think we would see thousands of cities doing this necessarily. I think we'd see many hundreds. And like Chattanooga and many other municipal networks, they would serve the communities around them. So we wouldn't necessarily have one network for every incorporated entity. We would have um, regions that w- had um, you know, a network like Fairlawn in Ohio, which is now expanding a little bit. Um, and, and we would see advantages that way, I think, of, of low-risk expansion because a network that is already proven it can handle its finances and everything else, expanding those networks is a no-brainer in many ways. Yeah, and you you get operational efficiencies, and and they really do become like utility operator. I mean, they're operating infrastructure, and then services are flowing across the top of it. Ideally, would prefer that everyone has a, a chance to to vote on who's maintaining that infrastructure, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the evidence that I've seen suggests that Chattanooga serving several of its neighbors. They all get the same high level of service. They have that mentality. So yeah. um, I feel like it's a good solution. Yeah. Um, so the last point then is rural areas and the uh, economically disadvantaged areas of cities um, and more urban areas, um, low-income folks, uh, which actually could also be in the rural areas. Um, but they will need, need more than just a loan. They will need some kind of subsidization then. Yeah, and that's where you know I feel like a lot of federal and state money is – um, I'm not going to say wasted, but being the return on the investment is very poor right now. The, the current state, um, because of the way this whole system works, we're getting very poor return for our investment and very little leverage on the dollars. I, I think the, the focus in terms of grants, subsidies, you know, it should be targeting the digital divide in whatever form. So 
where a community is at a disadvantage to build this infrastructure, whether it's rural or urban, economically difficult, um, private grants. And, you know, I think there's a big opportunity, and you and I have been talking about this, there's a big opportunity for philanthropy. Um, I'm working on a really interesting project in the Midwest. It's not funded yet, but if it is, it will be a really interesting project and bringing a level of connectivity to a, a whole community in a big urban city um, up to a really, you know, up to Ammon standards. That is where the need is, wherever the digital divide exists, whether it's, you know, usually it's there's an income component to that. Sometimes it's just really poor connectivity. But there, there is a role for grants and subsidies. And as we pull this all together then, the, the grants and subsidies are something that will effectively take a, a chunk out of the state or federal government. They'll have to spend that money. But your overall program, the focus on the loans, uses historically low interest rates right now. Um, yep. States are able to borrow at low at rates that are so low that even the most meager benefits from having um, innovation and, and fiber and lower prices will make that a wonderful investment for the states to be repaying over the years. Um, and this is why we have these sorts of investments is to grow the economy more quickly. And we would expect that states that did this would see their economies grow more quickly um, as a result of the innovation, the new competition and things like that. Yeah. And you and Osby in, in the interview, when Osby interviewed you, you got into this, but if the public sector, whether it's state, county, or city, would get behind these networks. They don't have to bond a bunch of new debt for the city. They just have to get behind the effort to make Wall Street comfortable. And institutional money will come into this. And I think in really pretty rapid order, we could fix the broadband problem. But some of these pieces we've been talking about have to align for it to happen. Yes. And when you say fix the broadband problem, you mean in a meaningful way. I, yeah. and, and I just want to come back to that because I, I just feel people forget it over and over again. Because when I look at places where they're fixing the broadband problem, which I hope the way I said that is clear, it's in quotation marks, by helping a telephone company create a monopoly of a higher technology, um, that's delaying the broadband problem in it many is. cases. Right? Yep. It's Absolutely. saying in five years, we're going to fight over pricing and this and that. And yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, to us, fixing it is, the sh is a shift to fiber optics. It's a shift to abundant bandwidth. Stop treating bandwidth as a scarce commodity and a shift to open networks. So to us, that's fixing the problem because you're, you're treating fiber like an abundant resource and it is for bandwidth. And you're unleashing competition and innovation. To us, that's fixing the problem. That sounds like a pretty good fix. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Uh, wonderful conversation. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you and everything you're doing. And it's always great to connect. Sounds good. And uh, enjoy that next drive up to Ammon. Okay. Will do. Thanks, Chris. That was Christopher talking with Jeff Christensen. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast.
You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 424 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.